The Way Out Podcast, episode 245. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm 45 years old now, so it was like the early 80s, mid 80s. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, mother was a stay-at-home mom for like my first 10 years. Then she went back to work at a hospital in downtown Brooklyn. My father, on the other hand, was a, uh, I call him a street guy. He was, uh, he was partially a criminal. He was a very bad gambler and he was a serial, serial infidelity. You know, he cheated on my mom all the time. And with all that being said, you know, I looked up to him. I looked up to him and I looked up to all the guys in my neighborhood in the street that were just like him. And that's kind of where my story starts. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of guys hanging out that I wanted to be like, and a lot of kids that I wanted to be like, and I just wasn't like them, you know? And from an early age, I was always trying to do things to fit in. Just always did things to try to fit in. And then when I got caught, I would just lie and I would get out of it. My father always took me to, you know, Met games and Jet games and, you know, Ranger games, movies. I, I was spoiled. I'm an only child. You know, my parents were very good to me. Vacations every year. When I was about 16 years old, my mother sat down with me one night and explained to me all the stuff that my father was doing because she wanted to, she wanted to leave him and she was kind of asking my permission, so to speak. Yeah. And by that time, you know, me and my father's relationship had, you know, it hit the skids because the gambling and the trouble he was getting into, he just became a really miserable person to be around. And uh, you know, I looked at my mother and I said, listen, if you're keeping him around for me, then don't even worry about it because, you know, I'm good if he's gone you know, I'll be fine. So that's what happened. You know, he, he called me over the next day and he told me, you know, me and your mother are splitting up. Now I, I really have no male role model. You know, I want to hang out with these kids in that schoolyard with the girls that they're hanging out with. And the only way in my head that I thought I could do that is by doing what they were doing. So I started drinking, I started smoking weed, and that's, that's where it all started. From the minute I put that drink in my mouth, that's all I wanted to do. And I didn't know when I was a kid that I had anxiety and that I had fear and insecurity. You don't know those things when you're a kid. You're just like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't really feel right, but you don't know what it is. Right. And that first night I drank, you know, I remember walking down to a party and talking to this girl that I liked for, for months and I couldn't talk to her. And that night I didn't even think about it. I just went, I talked to her and I was like, wow, you know, I like the way this makes me feel. I like the way it makes me act. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was, you know, it did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It was an everyday thing from the minute I walked into that college to the minute I left. You know, I started and I never stopped. Wow. And I was there on scholarship and my first semester, I, I was put on academic probation. Yeah. I didn't pass, I didn't pass one class. You know, first semester, almost failing out, second semester brought it back up. Oh. And that's what I did, man. Like college would have been so much easier if I just would have went to class. Yeah. But no, I didn't. You know, I chose to, you know, I chose to drink all day, every day. Graduated. And instead of like going out and doing what I should have done, I stayed in that town. And I worked in that bar and I got an apartment off campus because I didn't want to leave that life. My girlfriend at the time had enough. She's like, I'm moving on with my life. You're sitting here doing this. And she kind of gave me an ultimatum and she left, you know, by that time I started working for a bookie who lived in Brooklyn. So I started taking bets and um, now I started doing what my father did. 
And my father had passed away two years earlier. He died in 1997. He was 61 years old and he died alone. You know, he wound up becoming homeless. You know, he was very sick. He had diabetes, heart condition, and um, he just didn't take care of himself. And he burned so many bridges that nobody wanted him around anymore. Like me, he, he had his own sicknesses and he had his own addictions. And I came to terms with it and I was able to forgive him much later on in my life. I started to get sick, you know, I started to get alcohol withdrawal in the mornings and I was doing like an eight ball of coke every night. So I wake up in the morning or not sleep and my heart would be racing and I'd be sweating and shaking and I didn't know what it was. I thought I was dying. So I would go to the emergency room, they tell me I was fine. I would go to the doctor that my mother worked for and I knew him like to talk to him like a friend. And he would ask me, like, Tommy, you know, do you drink? And I was like, yeah, only a little bit. You know, do you do drugs? Nah, no drugs, doc. He's like, all right. So with the information I gave him, the only thing he could do was diagnose me with anxiety disorder. And he said, when you feel like that, take one of these. And he prescribes me Ativan and then Clonopin. And I found my solution, man. I yeah. drink and do an eight ball every night. And when I woke up in the morning, not able to get out of bed, I take a Clonopin, I take an Ativan. And I'm good. I could go about my day and so I could get home that night and do what I wanted to do. And that could only last so long, you know? Two years, two years later, I lose that job and I wind up in a psych unit in Long Island, New York. I told my mom and my aunt, I said, listen, I, I, you know, I, got, I have a problem, I need help. I didn't really want help. I just was kind of in so much trouble that I wanted to get away. I think of rehab, I'm thinking what I used to see on TV, you know, son, girls, you know, the pool, everybody talking about their lives, what they're going to do. <laughs> Long story short, they take me up in an elevator, you know, and they buzz a the door and I go into this place and the door shuts behind me. And I'm like, where am I right now? And he's like, this is the psych unit of this hospital. Town. He goes, you're going to be here for, you know, at least the next 10 days. And he's like, this is the psych unit of this hospital. Town. He goes, you're going to be here for, you know, at least the next 10 days. You know, five days after I got out of the psych ward, I'm drinking, I'm doing coke. And that one half of a pill turned into 800 milligrams a day. It changed my life. It turned me into a completely different person than I already was. As bad as I was, that changed me. And he looked at me and he said, Tommy, you know, you've been stealing from people for the last, you know, last three years. You're a junkie, Tommy, and that's what junkies do. It was a poignant moment in my life and I remember that 18 years later because he was right you know I don't like the word but that's what he characterized me as and that's how I was acting you know I wish it would have ended there but it got worse I'm in the street hustling robbing people stealing scheming and it's just getting too much and I broke and I couldn't take it anymore you know and I asked for help and it was the first I was sincere this time you know I went to a meeting the next day and I raised my hand and I said I needed help. And those people helped me. The theme of my life, I was always looking for that father figure. And these men were that to me. And they taught me how to live. They taught me how to live life without a drink, without a drug. And I stayed sober for three and a half years. You know, I met a girl, got the car, all the material things. You know, I had a little money in my pocket. I moved out of my mother's house. And slowly but surely, all those things got in the way of what I did to get them in the first place. And everybody that shared, I would judge. I'm not coming here anymore. 
and I stopped going. And I got twisted my back one day on the job. I went to the doctor and he prescribed me Vicodin. And that one Vicodin hit me and I knew it was over, you know? And it, the obsession happened right away. You know, the, the 40, 50 pills a day didn't happen right away, but the obsession did. And I don't remember what happened. All I remember is that about an hour later, I was sitting on my couch and I was on the phone with a guy that I had helped out a few years earlier. And um, I knew he, he was familiar with the, the process to go away on the job. So he called the, the counseling unit for me. And um, I was at the counseling unit the next day. Day after that, I was in rehab in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I've been sober since. And that was January, that was January 27, 2016. I was able to go there to get what I went there for, you know, the foundation I needed. And I knew what I had to do when I got out, but I still needed that time. I met a guy up there like my second week who was from Staten Island and we're still friends to this day. And he got out about a week before me and he said, listen, when you get out, call me. And he had told me about all these people that he knew. And uh, the day I got out, I called them. I went to my first meeting that night. That meeting is still my home group to this day. The man I met that night that he introduced me to that gave me my first coin. It was like a footstep, a footprints in the sand coin. He's yeah. still my sponsor to this day. All those people I met that night are still my friends to this day. And um, and my life is, is, it's been an unbelievable journey since. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. 
I'm Charlie, and I'm delighted to reassure the Way Out faithful that our beloved co-host Jason is back with a killer interview. It's been a minute since we've heard from Jason, but rest assured, Jason is still rocking his recovery. Fact is, Jason was out on assignment, getting us some more powerful recovery stories, such as this one with author in person in long-term recovery, Tommy Figlioli, otherwise known as Tommy Figs. Tommy shares his story to and through recovery to this point, including his life growing up in Brooklyn, New York, and the bumpy road to recovery, as he calls it. From a kid desperate to fit in and missing that all-important male role model, to near suicide in living the hard street life, to finally surrendering, getting honest, and finding meaningful and enduring recovery, Tommy's story has it all. We also talk about his hardest challenge while living clean and what inspired him to write a memoir entitled, That's What Junkies Do. There's a whole lot of heart and even more hope in this episode, so listen up. Hey, everybody out there. Thanks for joining us here on the Way Out Podcast. Uh, this is Jason, your trusty co-host. I don't know if any of y'all missed me or not. I know it's been a little bit since I've been on, but I didn't leave you. I didn't quit. I'm here, and I got a really awesome guest with me today, Thomas Figlioli from Brooklyn, New York, Staten Island. And uh, this dude, he wrote a book. It's called That's What Junkies Do. I haven't got that far into it yet, so that I'm going to be just as shocked by these stories as you guys today. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you. How's it going, Tommy? It's going good, man. It's going really good. How are you? Oh, I'm great, man. I had the opportunity to speak at a retirement community uh, for church services, two of them, this morning. Nice. A, yeah, it was a trip, man. It was it was cool. I met a lady. She's 99 years old. Uh, she was a World War II veteran who was stationed in the Philippines. She was a nurse. And it, I was like, damn, like that she had her uh, her uniform, you know, her old uniform, like on display in the glass there and shit. And then there's all sorts of just history. And man, these people that I don't know how many people came up to me and thanked me and then said, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> I had an ex-girlfriend. Her grandfather was a World War II vet. And um, I used to just sit with him for hours and hours listening to stories. And it was unbelievable, man. It was unbelievable. That whole generation is from a different cloth. Yeah, right. And it, yeah, it was a trip. It was it was a really cool experience, actually. And my son came with me. and He's nine. Uh, they, they have like 900 feet of shoreline. And they got everything you could think of there. The place was cool. Like, he played pool and... Uh, table tennis and putt putt he was putting golf balls outside and they have parks and he got ice cream and he, he had a blast meeting all these old folks and stuff nice man nice. day so far you're the cherry on top of my sunday brother awesome man awesome yeah um we like to typically start out you know some child you know childhood stuff you know family of okay. origin like let's hear where where you came from your roots all right i uh i Grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm 45 years old now, so it was like the early 80s, mid-80s. I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, mother was a stay-at-home mom for like my first 10 years, and then she went back to work at a hospital in downtown Brooklyn. My father, on the other hand, was a, uh, I call him a street guy. He was, uh, he was 
partially a criminal. And, um, you know, he owned a lot of businesses that always had some help on the inside. And uh, he was a very bad gambler and he was a serial, serial infidelity. You know, he cheated on my mom all the time. And with all that being said, you know, I looked up to him immensely. Oh, hell yeah. You know, I, I looked up to him and I looked up to all the guys in my neighborhood in the street that were just like him. And that's kind of where my story starts. You know, uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a lot of guys hanging out that I wanted to be like and a lot of kids that I wanted to be like. And I just wasn't like them, you know. And from an early age, I was always trying to do things to fit in. And, you know, early on in my book, there's a, there's a story. And I tell this story all the time when I speak at meetings or, you know, hospitals, wherever I, wherever I do. And, you know, I was like seven or eight years old and I walk out of my house and there was these kids hanging out and I just, I wanted to hang out with them. I wanted to be like them. So they used to play wiffle ball and they used to stuff wet newspaper in the bat and wrap it in black tape to make it heavy, like a real bat. So I walk out of the house and, you know, these kids hand me the bat and they tell me, I want you to go hit that kid in the head with this bat. So I grab the bat and because I want these guys to like me, I go and I hit the kid in the head <laughs> and I run back to them and, you know, they're all congratulating me and giving me <laughs> high fives. Yeah, and yeah. I feel great. You know, I feel great. I feel great. Like, all right, these guys accepted me. So now I go home about a half hour later and I'm like, why did I do that? You know, I, the kid, he was a nice kid and he didn't deserve what I did to him. And I felt terrible. And then the guy's father comes down about an hour later and he's yelling and screaming at my mother, telling them, tell my mother what I did. And she just looks at me and says, you know, wait till your father gets home. I'm not even dealing with this. So I'm like, oh man, my father's going to kill me. So I go upstairs, I wait for him to come home. About three or four hours later, he comes home. I look out and I see, you know, he drives the big white caddy, comes out of the thing, the jewelry, the slick back head, like out of central casting. And he calls me downstairs, tells me to get in the car. He drives me to a diner and he looks at me and he asks me, you know, why did you hit this kid? And in that moment, I'm like, I can't, I can't tell my father why I really hit him. Like, I'm telling, oh yeah, dad, I want these guys to accept me. He yeah. would have slapped me, you know, it would have been like, you're a little punk. So I said, ah, the kid pushed me and he made fun of mommy. So he looks at me and goes, oh yeah. Takes me into a diner, walks me into the back. All his friends are sitting there. I turn around and my father is like beaming, smiling, happy that I did this yeah. because that's the kind of guy he was. And he was happy. He's like, All right, my son stood up for his mother, stood up to a kid that's bigger than him. And he, you know, he's a tough little kid and he was proud of me, bought me ice cream. All his friends were proud of me. And I look back on it. I'm like, all these guys were what older versions of those kids that I looked up to. And from an early age, that's what started. You know, I just always did things to try to fit in. And then when I got caught, I would just lie and I would get out of it. Yeah. It was like the two big lessons you learned from that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really what I learned that day. And, uh, yep. you know, after that, after that, my childhood was normal. You know, I, I went to school, I played sports and I played baseball. I played hockey. My father always took me to, you know, Met games and Jet games and, you know, Ranger games, movies. I, I was spoiled. I'm an only child. You know, my parents were very good to me, vacations every year. And um, when I was about 16 years old, my mother sat down with me one night and explained to me all the stuff that my father was doing because she wanted to, she wanted to leave him and she was kind of asking my permission, so to speak. 
And by that time, you know, me and my father's relationship had, you know, it hit the skids because the gambling and the trouble he was getting into, he just became a really miserable person to be around. And, uh, yeah, I looked at my mother and I said, listen, if you're keeping him around for me, then don't even worry about it because, you know, I'm good if he's gone, you know, I'll be fine. So that's what happened. You know, he, he called me over the next day and he told me, you know, me and your mother are splitting up and, um, gave me the phone number to his girlfriend's house and said, if you need me, this is where I'll be. Already had yeah. a girlfriend. <laughs> oh, he had many. He had many. I'm sure. You know? Well, yeah, obviously you said that. Yeah. But, but it's like as a kid, that's kind of fucked up too. Like it is. I'm like shit. He's just going straight to the next one. Yeah. 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 But I mean, with all that being said, and as much as I couldn't stand being around him at that time, and the fact that he was going to his girlfriend's house, it was still my father, you know, and I was still upset that he was leaving in that moment. So now I'm 16 years old and my father's not around anymore. You know, I rarely see him after that. I rarely saw him. Um, and now I, I really have no male role model. You know, my cousin lived in my house. He was 13 years older than me, but he was doing his own thing. You know, he was smoking weed every day and hanging out with his girlfriend. He was like my big brother and I love him, but he wasn't the guy to look up to. And you know, I gravitate to the street. And now these kids that handed me that bat and were sitting playing wiffle ball, now those kids are on the corners and they're in the schoolyards and they're drinking beer and they're smoking weed. And I want to hang out with them. You know, I want to hang out with these kids in that schoolyard with the girls that they're hanging out with. And the only way in my head that I thought I could do that is by doing what they were doing. So I started drinking. I started smoking weed. And that's that's where it all started. Mm. And um now, I, I, say, I say it a lot that my story doesn't get out of control until way later on when I, the drugs come into play. Right. But if looking back on it, you know, I played hockey, uh, varsity high school hockey player. And about a month after I started drinking, I quit the team. I walked into practice one wow. day and said, I'm done. I'm done. And I quit because it got in the way. I wanted to drink. From the minute I put that drink in my mouth, that's all I wanted to do. Wow. You know, and I look back on it and I didn't know when I was a kid that I had anxiety and that I had fear and insecurity. You don't know those things when you're a kid. You're just like, I, oh, you know, I don't, I don't really feel right, but you don't know what it is. Right. And that first night I drank, you know, I remember walking down to a party and talking to this girl that I liked for, for months and I couldn't talk to her. And that night I didn't even think about it. I just went, I talked to her and I was like, wow, you know. I like the way this makes me feel. And I like the way it makes me act. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. You know, it did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Right. And, um, you know, I, I started to get out of control really quickly, but I got a scholarship to college. So I was able to get out of Brooklyn and I, I went up to Westchester, New York, and I roomed the two guys that I went to high school with, you know, and I remember the first day we were there, all our parents come up and they, you know, they say the goodbyes and they give us all the food and everything. Oh, you know, have fun, be careful. And I remember the door shutting and that was it. Like I started, I started drinking and I never stopped, you know, I never stopped. And um, it was an everyday thing from the minute I walked into that college to the minute I left, you know, I started, and I never stopped. Wow. And I was there on scholarship and my first semester, 
I, I was put on academic probation. Yeah. I didn't pass. I didn't pass one class, you know, and I, I pledged a fraternity and there was this kid in the fraternity. He was a nice kid, but he was just a loud mouth. And he was the, the holder of this award, most likely to be an AA. And I was <laughs> like, that was the award. And I was like, I want that award. Like, I want to be the best drinker in this fraternity. So that's what I set out to do. So my first semester wow. in college, I didn't go to one class, but I won that award. I won that award. I won that award that semester. And then every semester after that, and then two years after I graduated, they were still giving it to me. Holy shit. Do you think that dude was as proud of that uh, esteemed title as you were? <laughs> Probably at the, maybe at the time, you know, he actually went on to do good things. You know, he wound up becoming a police officer, a sergeant. He's already retired. Oh, wow. Cool. But, um, but yeah, that, that was like, that was my crowning achievement of my first semester in college. Yeah. And then like when that, when that semester is coming to an end, I'm like, I'm going to get thrown out of school. Like I have to do something. So I do what I did all the time. You know, I went and I talked to the right people and I played up the whole, my parents got divorced and my mother can't afford it. So I can't lose the scholarship, you know, and the dean of the school looked at me and he said, well, there's no way you could get that scholarship back because you need to maintain a 3.0 GPA and you got like a one six. So it's impossible to do. He said, but if you buckle down next semester and you get over a 3.0, he goes, we'll give you a grant to subsidize what the scholarship you lost is paying. And that's what I did. I went back my second semester You know, I still drank, but I did enough. I went to class, you know, I wrote the papers, took the tests. I got like a three, four and I, and I was able to stay in school. And then the next year I went back to doing the same thing. You know, first semester almost failing out. Second semester brought it back up. Oh. And that's what I did, man. Like college would have been so much easier if I just would have went to class. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I didn't, you know, I chose to, you know, I chose to drink all day, every day. You know, and um, fast forward a couple of years later, you know, I'm 21 years old. I'm hanging out in this bar so much. The guy just gives me a job there. He said, you just work here. It was like an old school towny bar. A lot of cops, a lot of, uh, a lot of town people were there. And he wanted a college crowd. So he hired me and a couple of my friends. And we brought the college crowd in. And you know, I talk about this guy in the book a lot. He was, he was really good to me. You know, he was, again, I was always looking for that father figure. And he became that. And um, I worked there for the next two years. I graduated. And instead of like going out and doing what I should have done, I stayed in that town. And I worked in that bar. And I got an apartment off campus because I didn't want to leave that life. And with that, my girlfriend at the time had enough. She's like, I'm moving on with my life. You're sitting here doing this. And she kind of gave me an ultimatum and I chose the life I was leaving, the life I was leading. And she left, you know, by that time I started working for a bookie who lived in Brooklyn. So I started taking bets and um, now I started doing what my father did. That was my father's life. And that's what I started doing. And my father had passed away two years earlier. He died in 1997. He was 61 years old and he died alone. You know, he wound up becoming homeless and, you know, we had to put him in, well, my mother and my aunt put him in an assisted living facility. You know, mm -hmm. he was very sick. He had diabetes, heart condition, and um, he just didn't take care of himself. And he burnt so many bridges that nobody wanted him around anymore. And when he showed up on my aunt's doorstep, she's like, I can't have you here. 
So my father wound up being homeless, living in his assisted facility for the remaining days of his life. Mm. And my mother being the person she is, she invited him to Christmas the last two years of his life because she felt bad for him. And one of those Christmases, he sat down with me and he, and he apologized and he made his amends to me. And he said he was sorry for what he did. And, and I should never do the things that he did. And at the time, I didn't want to hear that. But now I look back on it and I realize that like me, he, he had his own sicknesses and he had his own addictions and I came to terms with it and I was able to forgive him much later on in my life. For sure. You know, but when, then, you start, when you start getting well and you, you have to come to terms with your life, <laughs> then you can really appreciate this shit. You can look at it in a completely different way, you know, on the same, same thing with my parents, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my people say all the time, my wife asked me a lot. She like, if your father was still around, what do you think your relationship would be? I said, well, we'd probably be best friends now because aside from all the, you know, the, the side stuff, he was a great guy. I mean, he was funny. He was, you know, charming. There was all so many good things about him, but the sickness overtook all that. And, um, so I started doing the things that he did and, you know, now my girlfriend leaves me and I got to go and hang out with a new bunch of people. I got to start dating again. And again, I'm still that insecure little kid. You know, I'm 23 years old, but I'm still that insecure little kid. And now these people that I started hanging out with, they, you know, they're doing ecstasy. So I was like, ah, let me try that. You know, so I take a one hit of ecstasy one night. And I did it every day for like six months after that. And I was taking, I know, 15, 20 pills a day. It was insane. Like my friend looked at me one day. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm taking some meat. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go home and watch the Met game. The Mets opened up in Japan that year. So they were on it like two in the morning. So I said, yeah, I'm going to go home and watch the Met game. He's like, you're going to trip on ecstasy and watch the Met game. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you know, if you keep doing this, you're not going to be able to do anything normally anymore. And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And he was right. You know, he was right. And about six months later, I go to the guy and he doesn't have any ecstasy, but he has Coke. And he gives me this little foil packet. And in my mind, that was one of the lines I didn't want to cross. But that night, you know, I went into the bathroom of that bar and I did a line and I never drank again without cocaine. You know, it, it made me feel like Superman, you know, and uh, things started to unravel up there. You know, I, I talk about it in the book, but um, I started stealing. I started stealing from the guy who was so good to me because I couldn't pay my rent. You know, so I started selling drugs to subsidize my habit. And I was gambling so much. Do. That's yeah, hard no, to do yeah. when you're getting high on your own yeah. supply. <laughs> I was the worst drug dealer in history. Every time oh, yeah, I tried, I wound, up, I, wound up, yeah, I wound up losing money. And, sure. you know, I'm a bookie. I'm a bookie. I'm taking bets, but I'm also gambling. So... And I'm a bartender and I'm just drinking all day, every day. So like I'm a purveyor of these three services and I'm my best customer in all three. And right. that gets old. That, yeah. That gets old really quick. You know? And like I say in the book, there were days that I'd have like 15, 20,000 in cash in the top drawer. And then two weeks later, I couldn't pay the rent, Amen. you know? So it gets old that my roommate kind of had enough of me and a couple other things happened. And I decided to move back to Brooklyn with my family. And um, I get a job, financial firm in Manhattan, making good money, living in my mother's house. And I said, as long as I don't 
do the coke and then I'll be fine. You know, because when I was just drinking, smoking weed, nobody was trying to intervene on me. I wasn't robbing anybody. Life was good. And as long as I don't do the coke, I'll be fine. Mm. So I'm home for about two weeks. And uh, I say all the time, like, as soon as I had enough alcohol in me, like a switch went off in my head. And it's like I needed to, I needed coke. Right. So for one sure. night I'm, you know, one night I'm drinking with my friends and I was like, oh, you know, we get some coke. Yeah, of course we do. And it was all to the races after that. And uh, mm-hmm. I started to get sick. You know, I started to get alcohol withdrawal in the mornings and I was doing like an eight ball of coke every night. So I wake up in the morning or not sleep and my heart would be racing and I'd be sweating and shaking. And I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I thought I was dying. So I would go to the emergency room. They tell me I was fine. I would go to the doctor that my mother worked for. And I knew him like to talk to him like a friend. And he would ask me, he's like, Tommy, you know, do you drink? I was like, yeah, only a little bit. You know, do you do drugs? Nah, no drugs, doc. He's like, all right. So with the information I gave him, the only thing you do is diagnose me with anxiety disorder. And he said, when you feel like that, take one of these. And he prescribes me Ativan and then Clonopin. And I found my solution. Yeah, I yeah. drink and do an eight ball every night. And when I woke up in the morning, not able to get out of bed, I take a Clonopin, I take an Ativan, and I'm good. I could go about my day, and so I could get home that night and do what I wanted to do. And that could only last so long. You know, <laughs> two years, two years later, I lose that job, and I wind up in a psych unit in Long Island, New York. Yeah. You know, I uh, I told my mom and my aunt, I said, listen, I, I you know I got, I have a problem. I need help. I didn't really want help. I just was kind of in so much trouble that I wanted to get away. Right. So they're like, all right, we'll see what we can do. And that same doctor tells me, all right, we got a program out here in Long Island. I think a rehab. I'm thinking what I used to see on TV, you know, sun, girls, you know, the pool, everybody talking about their lives, what they're going to do. I get to this place and, you know, they interview me in the emergency room. Whatever I said, I, I really don't remember because I had taken a bunch of Clonopin before I went there. And um, <laughs> long, story short, they t- long story short, they take me up in an elevator, you know, and they buzz a door and I go into this place. And the door shuts behind me and I'm like, where am I right now? And, you know, my mother and my aunt look at me crying. The doctor looks at me. He's almost in tears. And he's like, this is the psych unit of this hospital. And he goes, you're going to be here for, you know, at least the next 10 days. And I was like, what? Hey, come on, psych. I, I don't belong here. And, you know, my mom and my aunt left. And I called all my friends trying to get me out. And they apparently all thought I belonged there too. So yeah. nobody, <laughs> nobody was coming. Nobody was, yeah, nobody was coming to save me, you know? So uh, I go to my room that night and I'm, I'm crying. You know, I'm crying like a little kid. And nurse knocks on my door and she says, there's a, there's a meeting down the hallway if you want to go. And I was like, ma'am, thank you, but I'm not here for alcohol. You know, I'm here for cocaine. So mm-hmm. I don't think I really need to hear what they have to say. And, um, <laughs> you know, she's like, listen, why don't you go? It's not like you have anything better to do right now. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, I went down and I listened. And the guy who spoke happened to be from Staten Island, where I live now. And he told a story about driving over the, the bridge to buy crack in East New York, Brooklyn. And there's a toll to get over that bridge. So he used to say he spent all his money and he'd have to collect cans to get back home over the bridge because he spent all his money on crack. What the hell? Soon, 
as soon as I heard that, I'm like, that is, it's never going to be me. Like, yeah. I, I can't well, identify with that. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I did a little too much coke. I'm 26 years old. That's not going to be me. I just have to, again, go back to what I was doing. I just drink and smoke weed and I'll be fine. But uh, yeah, I and I and I was arrogant enough to say that to this guy after the meeting. And he was really patient with me. You know, he just looked at me and he said, kid, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking, you're going to keep doing the things you're doing. He said, and one day your story will be mine, like it or not. And I was like, that's sounds nice, but uh, I appreciate it. It's never going to be my story. Thank you. Shook his hand. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> shook his head, shook, shook his hand, went, shook his hand, went back to my room. And I told those people what they needed to hear for the next 10 days so I could leave. Yep. And I, I get discharged on a Monday morning. My aunt comes and picks me up. She lets me drive our car home. You know, um, they all think I'm cured. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I went home that I went home that day. I got home probably around noontime. And by eight o'clock that night, I was drinking. Mm. You know, a week, 10 days earlier, I was sobbing in a room. How did my life get here? But I was too blind to see how my life got where it was. Bro, we talk and, about it a lot on on here where it's like, I got a quick forgetter. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll fucking forget that shit real quick. Just yeah. like, you you know, you were just outlining how you you had reached this point where you were just like, completely like baffled and and just like tore up and then next thing and and in that you recognize that it was because you know you're drinking you drink enough and then if you would have a, like a switch flip and you would need coke yep. but then now you're in there and you're telling yourself again same thing you told yourself before if i just drink and smoke weed it'll be okay yeah but no because then when you do that then the switch flips <laughs> and I never saw that, you know, I didn't want to stop drinking and my life revolved around drinking for since I was 16 years old. So yeah. I didn't want to stop that. I just said, you know, when all that other stuff came in, yeah, my life got hectic, but that was that stuff. You know, I had nothing to do with drinking in my mind. Right. So right. I get home that day. I'll never forget. I, I had the 12 step pamphlets and I spread them around strategically in my mother's house. So she would, you know, see it and be like, Oh, he's trying. He's really and into I, this shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I called, and I called my friend up and I was like, Oh, I'm home. Let's watch. It was Monday night. I said, let's watch Monday night raw. I'll be right down. I went to the store. I bought two forties and you know, that was, uh, that's what I did. And about five days later, I'm at a house in Hunter mountain, New York that we had rented before I went away and I'm in the bathroom doing Coke five days later, you know, five days after I got out of the psych ward, I'm drinking, I'm doing Coke. About a month after that, I, um, I used to take Percocets and I loved them. You know, I loved the way they made me feel. My aunt had them. She was very sick. So she, uh, she was prescribed Percocet and Oxycontin. I didn't know what Oxycontin was. I always used to see them when I took the Percocets. I didn't really know what it was. And when I was away in that place, I, I met a kid who told me about them. He was there for that. So I took a few of them. And a month after I got home, I took one one night. I took a half of one because it was at 80. And I was like, I uh, can't take 80 milligrams of Oxycontin. It's like 16 perks. I can't take that. So I'll break it in half. If I only take 40, not realizing that I broke the time release. 
and it's going to hit me all at once. So I had been drinking all day. I take that half of Oxy, wash it down, and it, it hit me. And up until that point in my life, it was the best thing I ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. And that one half of a pill turned into 800 milligrams a day. Damn. And it changed my life. It turned me into a completely different person than I already was. As bad as I was, that changed me. And, mm-hmm. you know, you read the beginning of my book when, um, where the title came from. When I'm having that conversation with my friend in his basement because I stole his money. And I'm denying it. And he looked at me and he said, Tommy, you know, you've been stealing from people for the last, you know, last three years. You're a junkie, Tommy. And that's what junkies do. And, you know, that's where the title of the book came from. And it was a, it was a poignant moment in my life. And I remember that 18 years later because he was right. You know, I don't like the word, but that's what he characterized me as. And that's how I was acting. You know, I wish it would have ended there, but it got worse. Right. So I get thrown out of his house. Then I get thrown out of another house to steal him. Then I get thrown out of every store in my neighborhood. <laughs> and slowly but surely, my world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And my cousin has a, my aunt had a house in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, you know, and she had passed away and my cousin moved up there. So I go there to try to dry out. And the first thing I do is steal his Percocets. You know, he needed a Percocet for his back. The first thing I do, I walk in the door, I take his Percocet, and then he confronts me about it, and I lie to him. And we're like the only two people in a 50-mile radius, and I lie to him about it. Right. And I drink anything I could find in the house, and he gets to the point. He's like, listen, he's got to stop. He flips me two joints, and he said, that's all you get, so deal with it. So I'm sitting in this bedroom by myself in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, with my cousin downstairs and two joints left. I'm dope sick. I'm starting to go into the drawer from the alcohol. And I look up on the wall and there's a shotgun there. And I'm like, I take it off the wall and I put it under my chin. I'm like, I'm, I'm ending this because I can't live like this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I'm killing everybody around me. I'm killing myself. And I don't know how to stop. Right. So I'm going to pull this trigger. I'm going to end it for everybody and everybody will be better off. I don't even know if the gun was loaded, but in that moment, I wanted to kill myself and I prayed for the strength to do it and I couldn't do it. And on, I kind of fall back in bed. I, you know, I, I get through the night, get through the next couple of days. I go home and I go on for another two years. And two years later, I'm in the street collecting cans for crack money. (laughs) <laughs> my store, my story became that guy's. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's where it Classic. ended up. And, you know, it's, I'm 29 years old now. I'm smoking crack. I'm sniffing two bundles of heroin a day. I'm in the street hustling, robbing people, stealing, scheming, and it's just getting too much. And I broke and I couldn't take it anymore. You know, and I asked for help and it was the first, I was sincere this time. I'm telling everybody, yeah, I'm asking for help. I'm asking for help. They're like, yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah. Right. Cause but, you did but, this yeah. before. But this time, like in my heart, I knew I was sincere this time. And, um, you know, I went to a meeting the next day and I raised my hand and I said, I needed help. And those people helped me, you know, um, I met 
so many good men and women, but especially the men. And um, like I said, uh, you know, it's a theme of my life. I was always looking for that father figure. And these men were that to me. And they taught me how to live. They taught me how to live life without a drink, without a drug. And I stayed sober for three and a half years. You know, in those three and a half years, I got up until this last point that I went away. Um, everything that was good in my life was because I went to those meetings and because I got sober and because I changed my life. You know, I got on the job that I'm still on today. You know, I met a girl, got the car, all the material things. You know, right. I had a little money in my pocket. I moved out of my mother's house. And slowly but surely, all those things got in the way of what I did to get them in the first place. You know, and I would go to meetings. I would go to my home group. And that's what it bought then. Like, I wasn't going anywhere anymore. I was just going to my home group. And we had, like, a little kitchen. And there was, like, 10 of us that were really close. And we used to go and we used to get food before the meeting. We used to eat, set up the meeting, clean up. And then I would just hang out in the kitchen the whole meeting. And everybody that shared, I would judge. Every time somebody walked in the door, I would, I don't like this one. I don't like that one. He's full of shit. I, I'm not coming here anymore. And I stopped going. And I got twisted my back one day on the job. I went to the doctor and he prescribed me Vicodin, you know, 7.5, 40 pills. I'll never forget it with four refills. And um, I said, I got to make a phone call, man, because I can't do this. That's what they told me. They told me to call somebody. So I called my friend, Chris, and I said, listen, Chris, I'm outside. I'm outside the drugstore. I got this script in my hand. I don't know what to do. He's like, throw it away and come to my house. I hung the phone up. I walked in the pharmacy. I cashed the script. I put it in my car. I went to his house and I lied to him. I went back to my house and I put those pills on my table and they sat there for two weeks. And then after two weeks, you know, I broke and I took one. And I said, I was 800 milligrams of Oxycontin. What's one Vicodin going to do to me? Right. And that one Vicodin hit me and I knew it was over. You know, and it, the obsession happened right away. You know, the, the 40, 50 pills a day didn't happen right away, but the obsession did. And that, you know what Manhattan Special is, the coffee soda? No. Right, Manhattan Special is like an espresso soda. It's is it bomb? Very pot- is it really good? Yeah, it is. It's awesome. I'm going to order it's like a Yeah, it's like a big New York thing. So it has a lot of caffeine in it. So I take that first Vicodin with one Manhattan Special. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm counting the minutes till the four hours is up so I could take another one or the six hours, whatever it was. And I was like, I'm only taking one. I take one, but I went and I bought five Manhattan specials because I wanted the caffeine to make it hit me quicker. So right away, I'm already trying to find ways to get high without getting high and to justify what I'm doing. Right. And uh, about a month later, a month or two later, you know, I'm up to 20, 30, 40 pills a day. But I put it down. You know, I put it down. And in February of 2010, I called my friend up and I said, listen, I'm out of control. I need help. He's like, I knew this call was coming. It was the same guy I called before I cashed the script in the first place. So he says, what do you want to do? It was Super Bowl Sunday, 2010. I said, uh, he goes, you want to go away? I said, I can't go away. I can't work, can't find out. 
I can't miss out on the overtime. I heard about this stuff called Suboxone. So I think I want to try that. He told me not to. I didn't listen. And I went on Suboxone. And I went back to meetings. And I was trying to do it the right way at the beginning. And the one good thing that happened in that year is I met my wife. But everything else wasn't right. You know, I never dealt with the issues that caused me to relapse in the first place. And in my heart, I never felt right about what I was doing. So in 2011, when I hurt my foot, it was very easy to go back and start taking pills again. And that started just like a constant hamster wheel of getting pills when I could. And when I didn't have the pills, I always had the suboxone to fall back on. And um, I had two foot surgeries, an elbow surgery in 2012. And mm. the day I had my elbow surgery, my wife, my, my nephew was born. So my wife went to see him and left me in my apartment alone with, uh, with 90 Percocet, you know, and, and a sling. And by the next afternoon, those 90 Percocets were gone. Jeez. And I had to call my friend. I had to buy them in the street because now I was in pain and I had nothing left. Right. So now, you know, the anxiety starts. I go to the doctor, tell them what they want to hear. I get prescribed Clonopin <laughs> and it just starts, you know, it just starts the whole thing over again. Yeah. And within three months, I get the doctor, the psychiatrist from one milligram once a day. I get to prescribe me two milligrams three times a day, the max dose. And now I'm doing that. I'm getting the, the pills when I can. You know, my boy's a Roxy dealer, so I'm getting those from him. I'm getting my own script. I'm going through those in 10 days. So now I'm buying other people's scripts. I'm buying them in the street. And long story short, you know, six years later, I'm up to like 200 Xanax a week. My own prescriptions of Clonopin, Suboxone, Oxy. I'm sniffing heroin again. I start taking Adderall. I start drinking. I'm drinking bottles of NyQuil because I don't want my wife to find bottles in the house. So I'm drinking NyQuil instead. And in 2015, I moved out to Staten Island. Mm. And uh, I thought I was, you know, getting away from it. But it just, you know, you take you wherever you go. So right. those five doctors I had in Brooklyn, I found one in Staten Island to give me everything those five were giving me. You know, and uh, I used to look at my medicine cabinet every night or every morning. And I was like, there's no way. I can't stop this. You know, I was on so much, so many benzos that, Every time I tried to stop, I would, it would be tired. Like I would shake. I would be on the verge of a seizure. I, I couldn't take it. I wasn't getting high anymore. I needed the stuff just to get out of bed anymore. I needed the stuff to function and to live. And uh, 2016, January of 2016, you know, we had a blizzard and um, I didn't show up for work. You know, my department fights snow. You know, I work for the sanitation department. That's one of our main things. We fight snow. And it was the first time in 10 years I, I didn't show up for my shift. And uh, the next day, I shoveled my wife, my fiance at the time, my wife out of her out of her parking spot. I sat in my car. I called up my dealer, and I said, I need 90 more Xanax. And he said, bro, I just gave you 200. I said, I need 90 more. And he said, all right, they'll be here when you get here. And I sat in the car, and I don't remember what happened. All I remember is that about an hour later, I was sitting on my couch and I was on the phone with a guy that I had helped out a few years earlier. And um, I knew he, he was familiar with the, the process to go away on the job. 
So he called the, the counseling unit for me. And um, I was at the counseling unit the next day. Day after that, I was in rehab in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I've been sober since. That's and that awesome. was January. That was January 27, 2016. That's awesome that you're uh, that you work for a company that is supportive of, of uh, that kind of stuff, you know, factors that in, you know, people have issues and yeah. help them instead of cutting them loose. You're a good employee. You're a good worker, you know? Yeah. You know, and I, I went into that place and I, uh, it was rough. You know, I was coming off a lot of stuff. And the bad thing was they had me in detox for like, I think it was the first five days. Yeah, I'm but sure. I was, I, I would, but I was, but I was fine those first five days because they were still giving me suboxone and mm. I still had the, I guess the benzos in my system. So I was fine for five days. Then they stepped me down to the regular rehab portion of it. And that's when I started going through it. And there was no more suboxone. There was no more comfort meds. And I, I struggled, you know, and um, I walked into that place. I was 178 pounds. Two weeks later, I was 143 pounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I had a seizure in my sleep. Um, I describe it in the book is like every step I took, I thought was going to be my last step. Like I really thought I was going to die. Yeah. And um, Benzos, man. Nerd- Benzos yeah, are no it. joke. I mean, there's only, there, there ain't a lot of substances out there that can actually kill somebody when you're withdrawing from them. Benzos is one of them. Uh, you know, I mean, listen, dope sick sucks. But I will take dope sick over benzos every day of the week because I listen, I was both. I, I was coming off of both, but I didn't even care about the dope sick. But I was like, all right, whatever. I don't care about throwing up diarrhea. That's all good. The other stuff, it was terrible. I would get up every morning when I slept and I would stand up and I'd be like, all right, maybe this is the day it stops. And then it would just start. And it was anxiety and shaking and I couldn't even talk and I would try to talk to people. I couldn't get words out. My, my lips would shake, you know, it was, it was terrible. My counselor would have to write for me. And, um, I tell this story because it's a big part of it. About two weeks in my uncle passed away when I was in place. He was sick before I left and he passed away when I was, when I was in treatment and my cousin, his son had died in 2014 as a direct result of drug use. You know, he had an aneurysm, passed out in the bathtub, and he died. But there was PCP in his system, you know, when they, when they found him. Mm. And they called me down to the office, and my wife is on the phone, my mother, my mother's boyfriend, and they tell me that my uncle passed away. And the place tells me, you know, if you want, we'll give you a pass, and you could go to the wake, and you could come back. And I went to my counselor, and I said this, I can't go. You know, I, uh, the only thing that was saving me at that point was being in that place because I didn't want to get high, but I didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. Yep. And in that place, I had no choice exactly. and I had people to talk to about it because there was 80 other people that were feeling pretty much the same way I was. Yeah. If I would have left that place, I would have taken something to make me feel better. And I know where that would have led. So while it was an agonizing decision at the time, I, I decided not to go. And thank God I did because my uncle would have understood. You know, I, he came to me in a dream that night 
And the way my uncle talked to me, he's like, stay where you are, you little asshole. I'll be fine. You know? And, uh, Thank God I did because about a week later, you know, I started feeling better. I started eating again. My hands still shook, but shaking got less. I was able to talk a little better and um, I was able to go there to get what I went there for, you know, the foundation I needed. And I knew what I had to do when I got out, but I still needed that time. And my counselor got me an extra week there and um, I moved to Staten Island. So I didn't know anybody in Staten Island recovery. So I was going into a new, whole new area. Right. But I, I met a guy up there, like my second week, who was from Staten Island. And we're still friends to this day. And he got out about a week before me. And he said, listen, when you get out, call me. And he had told me about all these people that he knew. And uh, the day I got out, I called him. I went to my first meeting that night. That meeting is still my home group to this day. The man I met that night that he introduced me to that gave me my first coin. It was like a footstep, a footprints in the sand coin. He's yeah. still my sponsor to this day. All those people I met that night are still my friends to this day. And um and my life is is it's been an unbelievable journey since, you know. Um, That's awesome, man. Yep. You know, I, I gotta say, like, there's so much about your story that really resonates and <clears throat> like I I can relate to like it's really kind of eerie you know like how uh certain parts of your story just were like they were exactly like I like I knew exactly you know because I've been, been through but you know like when you were talking about how when you first started getting the DTs or you know whatever and you didn't know what it was and you lied to your doctor and he gave you anxiety meds and then you were like this shit works you know it was like it solved the problem you're like dude bet that's awesome i can keep going um when i sold drugs i was always so greedy dude i wanted to corner every market you know i wanted to just be the one-stop shop dude like i got you what you need what you need you know like and so I never wanted to sleep because then I'd be missing out on opportunities for money where people are going to start going other places. But that was how I did, man. I'd be up forever. And then I, you know, I would take some benzos or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. I had, there's all sorts of different types of shit I'd take, <laughs> you know, it knocked me out. So I, I just wanted to like, never feel the shitty part of anything. Right. Like I wanted okay. to just feel the good part. And then once this starts to getting really weird, now I can just then, you know, put myself down and I wake up and I'll, and then I need a little pick me up and then I'm good. I'm like, right, you're rock. Um, you know, when you were talking about when you tried to, you had that shotgun and you were praying for the strength to do it. That's a, uh, that's part of my story as well. I was screaming why, or I was screaming, help me, help me. I didn't even know who I was screaming to. I was just screaming it, but that's what I meant. You know, help me drive this huge Rambo knife through my neck. But instead, yeah, I think it was a different kind of help I got. I ended up putting the knife down and calling my old, you know, quote unquote sponsor that I never did any step work with. Uh, but I was able to show people my phone and say, look, I got a sponsor. You know? I sponsor, yeah. Um, it's just a trip to me, you know, how, how many times, you know, how many times you got to be at that end of your rope feeling um, and we can have that quick forgetter and then we can, 
you just keep going. But then there's that, you know, you get to a one point where it actually work and you, you've reached that more than once now, you know? <laughs> um, and I only bring that up because I think it's instructive, man. Your story shows, you know, that like you can do well in this, you can, you can get clean and you can grow and you can learn and all that shit and you can still fall. You know, you, 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 the way that you talked about how that happened to you and and then, you know, your journey back to recovery, it's like, it's awesome. It's awesome to see people glow and like thrive in this thing. But at the same time, it's like, I think it's also awesome if we have a healthy level of like respect and fear and reverence for what this disease is, because, you know, like we, we're not exempt. Right. And you, it's, it's beautiful, but it's, it just scares the shit out of me at the same time for myself, for you, for anyone, man. Like, because at any given moment we could just make a stupid fucking decision and it takes just the one, just the one decision. And now it's just sets it all in motion again, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, I never had that healthy fear of it the first time around. You know, I'm honest with you. I didn't have that fear of it. I thought, that's it. You know, I got sober. I got clean. I'm, I'm good. Like I'm never going to go back to that. And that's why I, I try to stay vigilant nowadays because it's, I'm a big, listen, I, I give money to everybody that asks for it. You know, if I'm in a car and there's homeless people in the street, I get my, my wife is like, Oh my God, you give everybody money because I'm one bad decision away from being that guy. Right. You know, I'm not exempt from any of this. You know, if it wasn't for my mother, I would have been that guy. You know, I did collect cans in the street. I did smoke cigarette butts off the floor. So I do have that healthy fear of it now. You know, and there's a story in the book, like towards the end, where it, it's, it comes, I come face to face with it again. You know, in August of 2019, 18 or 19, I can't remember. I think it was 19 because I had gotten promoted on my job. And um, I go to my, my mother-in-law's house for dinner. It was my wife and mine anniversary a couple of weeks earlier. So they were having dinner for us. And her father got hurt. He was taking something off the house and he fell off a ladder and he broke his ribs and they gave him Vicodin. Mm. So my father's an older Italian man off the boat. He doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. He loves to drink his wine. And her grandfather is, now he's 92. At the time he was, you know, 89, 90. He likes to drink his beer, you know. They don't understand me, like where I come from. They, they know I went away. They respect it, but they don't really understand. So they always offer me a beer, her grandfather, and I always say no. <laughs> so her father yeah. comes up to me. I'm standing in the kitchen. He puts a bottle in my hand. He goes, he asked me, he goes, are these okay to take? Because if I'm drinking wine, can I take these? And I look down at my hand, and it's a bottle of Vicodin. And then the grandfather's offering me a beer on the other side of the room. And I look at my sister-in-law and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is crazy right now. So I, I hand them back to him. I was like, you can't drink with those. I said, I don't want a beer. Thank you. And ordinarily, like I could brush stuff off. And that night I couldn't brush that off. You know, and I, I walked into the living room and I was hanging out with my nephews who normally put me in a great mood. But Mm -hmm. that night I couldn't get, I couldn't get past it. 
So I tell my wife, we got to leave. And I go home that night. And now it's like 11 o'clock. I'm like, I don't want to call anybody. I don't want to bother anybody because that's me. You know, I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want yeah. anybody to think that I need help. So right. I'll be fine. Like I'm in my house. I'm safe. I'll go to sleep. If I wake up tomorrow and I still feel like this, I'll call somebody. I wake up the next day. I still feel like that. But now it's four o'clock in the morning and I still don't want to bother anybody. Yeah. (laughs) So I go, I go to work and I'm a supervisor now. So they have like, when there's homeless encampments around the city, you know, my department goes and cleans them up. So I go to work, I fill out all my paperwork. I'm supervising this whole project and we have to wait for all these different departments to come police department, homeless services, uh, homeless outreach, so I'm sitting there and I'm struggling all day and the homeless outreach volunteer comes and we start talking and this guy turns out that he's in the program. He's clean five years. Awesome. We start talking you know, we start talking program, recovery, war stories, the whole mind. And I tell him about the night before and he talks me through it, you know? So I leave work and I, I on the way home, I call my sponsor. I talk to him. He talks me more through it. I go to a meeting that night, the next day, day after that, get it all out. A hundred people talked me through it and gave me their experience. Right. If that guy isn't there that day, I don't know if I get through that. Right. And before that, I, I said I was raised Catholic, Catholic school. I was having trouble with the God thing before that. After that day, the faith I have has grown enormously and i look back to that day because god put that guy in my life right and it's funny how dude okay i'm like the same way i've had that experience numerous times where it's like okay i'm sitting here and i'm getting in my way you know really but god's gonna find a way to penetrate your hard candy shell (laughs) you know and get into the heart of you and let you know you know and that's so cool dude that I'm glad that that happened, man. And I, I think it comes to man, when we're just with the whole fact that when you're like, when you're really experiencing recovery, you kind of just can't help, but like talk, talk about shit and be real about it. And like, be open about your experience with recovery or your experience with some shitty stuff that in like, try, you know what I mean? You just share those things more freely than you did before. Um, Absolutely. And as a result, as you said, you end up fucking realizing you're talking to some random stranger who's this person's got recovery. I'm like, dude, I love that shit. Yeah. And like, as I'm talking to him, I don't realize it. I just think I'm talking to some guy, whatever. And then even I went back to the, the garage, I fill out the rest of my paperwork. I was in my car for like 20 minutes before it hit me. I'm like, holy shit. Like this guy was put in my life. I've never, I, didn't, I don't even remember his name. Never saw him before that. Never saw him after that. Wow. But he got me through that day. And ever since then, it's been smooth sailing. And, you know, life comes and life is not always, life is not always, uh, life's not always easy. You know, my, me and my wife, we've been together 11 years. We're married four. We've been trying to have a kid for three. And we're having a lot of trouble. You know, it's a struggle. She's uh, had five miscarriages. We've been to fertility doctors. You know, she's having another surgery next week. Um, 
it's been a struggle and I'm able to be there for her. You know, I'm able to be there for her and I'm able to be the voice of hope, voice to reason. And she's grown. I tell her all the time. I'm like, I, I've noticed such a, a growth in her and her strength and her faith by going through this. And I keep telling her, I'm like, you know, <clears throat> we're doing everything we humanly possibly can do. The rest is not in our hands. I don't know why we're going through this. Right. But there is a reason. What that reason is, I have no idea. I don't know if we'll ever know, but there is a reason. And when she's having her moments and she can't deal with it anymore, I'm able to be there for her. When six years ago, I'd be out the door, you know, pills, drink, yeah. and somewhere else, you know, because I couldn't deal with it. it because Just shut I would have, yeah, I would have made it all about me, and it's not about me, you know. I'm going through this with her. But this is not about me. You know, this is about being there for somebody else during that time of need. And for that alone, it, it, all this is worth it. Oh, that's beautiful. My, uh, my ex-brother-in-law, you just reminded me of him. Good dude, man. And uh, him and his wife, they've been through all of this with the addiction struggles and and everything and he's been in recovery now for a little while and it's been a beautiful thing man to reconnect with him uh as a person in recovery and and we've had like some good heart to hearts and i was able to celebrate with him for his one year or his 18 month i can't remember which one but dude it's like crazy because they've been having them same issues with the baby thing and you know i'll tell you the same thing i told him man you know I can't imagine what you're going through and how hard it must be, but I'm really proud of you for sticking through it, dude, and not giving up and to be able to maintain a positivity about it. Um, and, and just a, a willingness to persevere, right? Like a drive to continue to try. We're going to figure it out. It's going to be okay. And you know, that's going to bring you and your wife closer together, man. And, I'll definitely be praying for you guys in, in, you, in your journey with that. Cause that's, it's gotta be really hard, you know? Yeah. I mean, it is, but, uh, again, I, I, what am I going to do? You know, I cry when I have to, you know, I, I let it out when I have to, but to come home and, and just to let it take my life over, that's yeah. not going to do anybody any good. So you know, the only thing we can do is move forward. And again, I have faith that whatever's going to be is going to be, and it's for the right reason, whether it ever works out or not. You know, if it doesn't work out, then there's a reason for it, and we'll figure that out and we'll move on from that. Right. That's the worst case scenario in this, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's how yeah. I do it. You never know what could happen. And don't, you know, anything, I always say, like, don't even tell me, dude, that God won't do it because I've seen some crazy things in this recovery process, you know, I was a completely faithless type person and, uh, you know, similar to yourself, like just some things, uh, have happened and especially things within me that, you know, they're just undeniable. Like, it's like, this is weird. It's like out of this world, you know, like it can't be described in any like rational way and, and you can just feel it. So, I mean, you're, from the sounds of it, you're doing 
your, your head's in the right place. You know what I mean? Through, through the whole thing and just keep going, bro. And like you said, you got this great community around you and that's, what's carrying you when you need it. Absolutely. Then. Absolutely. Need to be carried sometimes. <laughs> I, t- I tell my wife all the time, I was like, you don't even know the amount of people you have praying for you. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's a special thing. You know, it's a special thing. I always say, uh, the road to get here it might not have been the best one, but I'm so happy I wound up where I did. Yeah. And in a place where like I go to a meeting and I went to a meeting last night of a girl that I met 12 years ago and she was celebrating 12 years. She had just moved out to Staten Island oh. and um, she was 19 years. She was 19 years old when she got sober and she's 31 now, just celebrated 12 years. So, I went to that meeting last night and when I walk, it's it's on the beach, the meeting. So I go there and I walk over and the guy, Chris, that I talk about calling him when I was outside the pharmacy, calling him when I went back, I walk in, he's there because he knows the girl and I haven't seen him in probably two years. And then I listen to this girl speak and she talks about her road and how much she's grown. And when she stopped going to meetings, how she wasn't drinking, but she wanted to end her life. Right. And that alone, like I talked to her after the meeting, and it's just, it's just a miracle. And it's a miracle to see that stuff and to hear these stories. And um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, like I said, the road to get here, a little bumpy, but. You know? <laughs> just a little. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I made it, you know, I made it. I'm here today and uh, just make the best of it. Absolutely, man. So when, when did you uh, become compelled to write a book? What, what was that like? What? I always liked reading addiction memoirs. Um, most of them are about famous people. And I actually read Josh Hamilton's, but you actually remind me of him. But uh, I read Josh Hamilton's book. He used to play for the Angels. And I read his book when I was in treatment. And then when I got out, my sponsor made me write my first step. He made me write my life story. And then all the places that my life was unmanageable without alcohol and without drugs. And then with it. And so you had half a like, book right there then? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. It was like 30 pages. So Shit. I write that. I write that and it kind of, you know, it kind of got me going. But I always said, like, who wants to read about, you know, this guy from Brooklyn, Staten Island? Who wants to read my story? And then I picked up a book about four years ago. It's this guy, his name is Sam. He lives in Virginia. He's a personal trainer. And he wrote a book about his struggle. And we became, you know, Instagram friends, Facebook friends, talking back and forth. He actually put um, my story on his website. And I read his book. And after I read his book, I said, people do want to read this stuff about regular people. Mm-hmm. Because I do. And yeah. it kind of got me going. And it started with me writing little stories in my iPhone. And one day I was at work and I'm working with this old timer and I gave him old time sanitation work, not old timer, old timer. And I, <laughs> I gave him my phone and I said, read this for me and let me know what you think. And he read it and he looked at me and he said, he goes, yo kid, he goes, I don't know what you're doing hanging out with us. He goes, you have a talent and you should pursue this. And that kind of gave me that confidence that I needed. And I started writing it. And um, 
that was another process. It took me three years to write it. You know, there were times that I couldn't put into words what I wanted to say. I, you know, I was, I'm writing about my own life and I couldn't put it into the right words. So when that happened, I put it down. And when got to be feeling, uncomfortable sometimes, right? To yeah, yeah, you kind of got to re-experience like, it, right? To like to yes. word it and and yes, think you know they were feel the feelings again. You know there were chapters that I wrote that I, I would go into my wife and she'd be like, "What's wrong?" I'm like, "I'm out of breath. You know, I can't. I'm writing this, and as I'm writing, I'm like, I can't believe I lived this." And, um, but there were, there were certain parts that I couldn't, I couldn't write it the right way. And when that happened, I put it down and I was never in a rush. And when the, the words came and the thoughts came, I went back and I sat down and I wrote and when they, and when they left, I stopped. Yeah. And, um, three years, you know, three years later, I finally finished and, uh, you know, I'm so proud of, I'm so proud of it. I really am. You know, it's, uh, it should be Takes the a lot yeah, the feedback I've gotten has been unbelievable from people I know and people I don't know. Right. You know, uh, a lot of people, you know, they reach out to me and they're like, oh my God, such a great book, but we're happy, but we're surprised you're still alive. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm surprised too. But again, there's a reason for it. And this book was never about making money. You know, I, I don't care about that, you know. If it sold one copy, I would have been happy because that one person maybe would have helped them. Right. You know, I look back, one person helped me. You know, even though that guy in that place, I didn't listen to him in 2002, he helped me. You know, those men that I met helped me. They helped this one person. And then I help one person. They help one person. Next thing you know it, you know, you have a whole community. And that's all this book was ever about. And um, it's exceeded my expectations already. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really happy and proud of, of the story I put out there. And, you know, I just hope that it does help people. And it's real pride. It's not that kind of false pride, you know, that doesn't stick with you. This is mm -hmm. like the kind that sticks with you, man. And it's a good thing. It takes a lot of courage to share on that level, you know, in that kind of depth. And, uh, you know, that's, extreme vulnerability man so i always say that to the authors because it's 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 because of people that are willing to do that that you know the programs the 12-step programs are able to continue on and thrive and and continue to make people uh feel safe and be able to get better you know it's like <laughs> because you only feel comfortable sharing your story of somebody else has the courage to tell you theirs. And then now you feel safe and it gives you permission, right? Exactly. So it's my, really sponsor, yeah, my sponsor, real quick, my sponsor is a very old school guy. And his thing is that at the core of it, you know, all 12 step programs is, is one person helping another addict, alcoholic, whatever, gambler. Yeah. And it's the stories, you know, it's the stories and the identification. And, you know, what better way to put your story out there than, than write a book? Fuck yeah. Now I know that I'm not alone and I know that I'm not that unique, right? Yep. I used to really think that and I think we all did, you know, and it's just crazy. But I uh I got these rapid fire questions. I like I've been doing this for a while now. I I always love this part. Some good questions. Right, eh? 
you you down oh, to man. do it? Absolutely, man. All right. Question number one: What's something that you haven't forgiven yourself for yet, or someone else? Uh, the guy at the beginning of the book that called me a junkie and said you're a junkie, and that's what junkies do. Mm-hmm. I used to think that I forgave him until I wrote this book. And when people ask me about the title, I'll always say, you know, some people haven't come around and I have to give him credit for that. But deep down, like I still have a resentment against him for for saying that to me and for the way our relationship had panned out when in all actuality, I really don't have a right to do that. So that's something I have to work on and maybe reconnect with him just Mm -hmm. to talk it over and just to lay my story out there and make my amends to him because I never really did. Right. Well, you know, it's like feelings aren't rational, dude, and that's the thing. We can know all this program stuff, and we can catch ourselves, right, feeling the feelings that we feel and know that it's wrong and know that we're twisted. Like, my thinking's twisted right now on this, but it doesn't matter, dude, like, because feelings aren't fucking rational. (laughs) I mean, I've answered the question 20 times in the last month, and it took, like, 15 of them for me to realize, like, maybe I do – have to revisit that whole situation. So our work here is never done, man. Never is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is uh if if you had to pick one, I know you've probably heard so many gems, but if you had to pick one, like the best piece of advice that you ever got, like something that just stuck with you, you put it in your pocket and you carry it with you and you bring it up all you say it all the time. It's just it always stuck with you. <sighs> Don't expect everybody to behave the way you want them to. Ooh, that's funny. My sponsor told me um, something similar. He said, you can't hold other people to the same standard as you hold yourself. Yeah, exactly. When I I got promoted on my job, one of the men in the program that I'm I'm pretty close to, he he was a big boss on my job. And when I first got promoted, he said to me, he said, listen, Tommy, don't expect everybody to work the way you did. And then that turned into don't expect everybody to feel the way you want them to. And that's, I always tell my wife that I'm like, you know, your expectations of other people will always disappoint you. Mm. So go in with an open mind and just understand that that person might be dealing with something totally different that you don't know about. Right. And it's something I try to do every day. Again, I don't do it perfectly, but, uh, Right, But I try and I, it's something I always say to myself in my head when I see myself kind of judging another person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you had a, like a book recommendation or like something that really helped you a lot as far as literature wise. Um, obviously the big book. Um, hands, hands like you're praying. That's the book that I read and it was written by this guy, Sam, who lives in Virginia. It's mm-hmm. called Hands Like You Are Praying. And um, that book showed me a vulnerability and, and it, it showed me that people want to read about real people. And that what he said in that book, I identify with it so much that uh, that book really helped me out a lot and seeing the way he turned his life around. Yeah. Hands Like You Are Praying. Yep. I'll I always take these things 
there's a couple of the questions that are more tangible. I'll put them in the show notes so people can actually like check it out, you know, like go check yeah, out yeah, what, you, what you said. Yeah. Real um, good book. Yeah. It's, I've never actually heard of that ever. So definitely. Uh, that, and this is why I love this because I get turned on to stuff. Uh, yeah, that's- new things, you know, uh, what's the hardest thing that you've had to do in your recovery journey? The thing with my wife, the IVF, you know, the, the struggle with trying to have a baby is <clears throat> by far the hardest thing by far. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging tough, man. Uh, what's the most rewarding thing you've done? There's so many, um, marrying my wife, probably up there with, uh, with the top, you know, writing this book celebrating my five years it, you know there's too many to even mention there's really too many to mention hell yeah well you only needed one you just did three so yeah i just did three <laughs> an overachiever <laughs> <laughs> um this is one of my faves what's a song that symbolizes recovery to you or like reminds you of your recovery amazing by aerosmith yeah yeah if you look on my on my instagram i actually put uh put that song to my last one of my recent posts about the book and uh it's just great i actually i again i listened to that song for years i never really understood what it was about right and then like i love putting on youtube and looking for speakers and like chris herron's one of my favorites you know i love listening to him and i put on like you know recovery music and steven tyler actually goes to this rehab that he went to yeah. every year and he does like a performance and he, yeah. he performed he performed amazing. And it was the first time I really listened to it and really listened to the words. And he wrote that song about his own struggle and his own recovery. And just an amazing, amazing song. I didn't know that. Yeah. I know that he does it. He, he's a part of that recovery unplugged. Yeah. That's, and he goes to this rehab every year that he went to. And, that's uh, the one. Yep. I thought yeah. he would like owned that or something. He probably does, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know, but I I got a I got a acquaintance through online recovery community who worked for them, uh, okay. and now he's a signed artist. Pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, it's weird the people you meet like in these recovery, just doing all this online stuff. Yeah, um, I've met a lot of really cool people around the world, dude, and uh, you know some of them become like some of my greatest cheerleaders, dude, and then. I love watching their journeys. They inspire me. And it's just that you can never meet too many people, man. You can never see too many faces. In absolutely. Stuff. Absolutely. You know, we all have this thing, you know, it, it bonds us all together. Right. All right. We're almost done. Two more. Uh, okay. What would be like a recovery resources that you would recommend? Uh, as far as whatever. It was basically a very open-ended, you know, because it could be anything, man. Listen, I, um, I'm a 12-step guy. I grew up in 12 steps, so to speak. And um, I was always very rich. That's the only way, you know, the only way that it has to be done. Right. I've evolved my thinking since then. You know, I have friends that are out there on, you know, medically assisted treatment and, they're living their life the right way. And if they weren't on it, they'd probably be dead. So 
Yeah. My whole thing is like whatever resource you can find that works, whether it be church, whether it be 12 step recovery, whether it be smart recovery, whatever it is, you know, use that yeah. you know, medical people, you know, therapy, there's no shame in, in trying to get better. So any resource you can find it again, 12 steps, smart, medically assisted, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever gets you off and whatever gets you to live a better life, you know? By all means, try it. I'm right there with you, man. I, I think if I've learned anything, especially from my time when I was uh, volunteering a lot at Minnesota Recovery Connection, it's a recovery community organization around here. But that's I did Recovery Coach Academy there, and they taught me all about this the the many different pathways of recovery, right and that that was huge for me to realize that you know there is no one tried and true way and everybody you know recovery is just like people it's all everybody's different and and absolutely needs different belief systems Mm -hmm. different cultures different everything so it's it's the best answer i think is like basically yeah try just freaking get out there find out about all the shit you can and try all the shit you can and find yeah, the things I mean, that really set your soul on fire and help you get through yeah. like if you're trying 12 steps for 50 years and it's not working you'll try something else right try something else <laughs> you would think it's, yeah. it's just like in our addiction you know this definition of insanity or whatever yeah yeah the last question we really think that daily routines are paramount they're they're critical for us in uh people as people in recovery to maintain a solid you know footing in life and and uh, be spiritually grounded what are some things that you do for a daily routine um every morning i get up i thank god for another day i this is crazy when i first got sober 2005 they told me the little things that you change make a big, big difference. So the little thing to me is I never made my bed for 29 years. I never made my bed. That first day I got sober, I made my bed and I never stopped since then. So it's a little thing is getting up in the morning, making my bed, thanking God for another day, except if my wife is in the bed, then I don't make it. But uh, thanking God for another day, I try this is just for me. I try to say something nice to at least one person every day. As I'm going throughout my day, if I find myself slipping already, slipping off a little bit, I always say the serenity prayer in my head. I call at least one other person in the, uh, in the program every day, text, call, whatever. I have my little text things in the morning to a couple of different people. I try to keep my day busy. I try to work out. I try to stay fit. Um, I try to eat right and um, I lay my head on the pillow at night and I kind of go over my day. And uh, if I fall short in an area, I just try to rectify it the next day. And anybody that I might have wronged or I think deserves an apology or an amends, I do it right away. So it doesn't build up. Oh yeah. Sounds like you're adopting a lot of things into your daily life. And that's, that's what it's about, right? Like, yeah. Uh, we got to live this. We got to live it. If we ain't living it, then we're faking it. You know, absolutely. Man. You know, anybody could, uh, 
anybody can recite a page of a book. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but it, my sponsor has this big thing. He goes, you know, you could come into a, into a meeting and, you know, sound great. And then if, but if you go on home and, you know, you're kicking your dog and you're slamming the doors, then, you know, what is it? You know, what are you really, what are you really feeling? Mm. So I just try to keep it up front every day and just try to not so much work the steps, but live them. Absolutely, man. Living it, loving it, man. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for doing it. I appreciate you having me, man. It was, it was definitely awesome. Hell yeah. Well, until next time, you guys take care of yourselves and each other and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you for being a part of the way out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Tune in, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.